Hello and welcome to the Science Shambles podcast, producer Trent here. This episode is an audio version of the video version that goes out live at 3pm British time every Sunday on our YouTube channel, a science Q&A, a different topic each week, always hosted by Robin Ince and Dr. Helen Chersky. Different guests each week. As such, bear in mind there might be a couple of moments that are more suited to the original visual format, particularly in the show and tells at the start. But that shouldn't hamper your enjoyment too much of this podcast version. And also, since it goes out live as well, everyone's on different broadband speeds, different microphones, different settings. So there might be a couple of little bits of audio dropout or echo or the random things that one encounters when doing something live over Zoom or Skype or whatever it is. You all know how finicky doing these video conferencing things can be by now. If you want to support the show, help us keep making it each week, keep making it free for everyone. You can go to patreon.com slash cosmic shambles and support us on there and get yourself various rewards and goodies and exclusives for doing so as well. And now here is this week's episode of the Science Shambles Sunday Q&A show. Hope you enjoy. Hello, welcome to our Sunday Science Q&A. We're here every single week. I'm always joined by Helen Chersky, who, as usual, uh, shortly will be telling you about this week in science, uh, what we should remember historically from the great breakthroughs of science. Uh, today, in particular, we're going to be talking about nature. We've already been dealing, just before we came on air, with some of the fascinating things that Helen knows uh, about nature, in particular the nature of cats. She's done a lot of research. She's found out that apparently cats are terrified of cucumbers. Uh, it's already made me doubt many of the things she said in our previous weeks now uh, that nearly all of her research which I presumed had actually been done in general kind of like oceanography expeditions has been done on YouTube so if you know about <laughs> cats and cucumbers and whether cats are kind of hardwired to fear cucumbers due to some kind of snake fear um, then put something in the live chat tell us about this information because it's going to be this could take over from Helen's frequent say, discussions about whale poo bust the show this is it we are we are done now sorry Joe and Miranda but you know Cats all the way. Well, well, cats and birds. I'm sure there's something we can look at in that. Uh, the um, but anyway, we will. Uh, today is nature. That's the main thing we're going to be talking about. But of course, do ask other questions as well. Helen has uh, an in incredibly broad uh, knowledge as well. And as I said, if anyone's got any particular quandaries they're having with homeschooling uh, at the moment, throw that at us, and we'll see if in any way we can help in terms of the science questions there. Uh, and uh, a couple of things to quickly mention, which is uh, Helen's Family Science Club is still up on YouTube. You can find that. We're going to do some more stuff. This is. <coughs> I hope always friendly for as, as well whether whatever age you are uh this is uh if you've got questions whether you're a seven-year-old or whether you're a 97 year old and you have a question scientific question then please you know join in every week uh there's we try and deal with as much as possible i'll also quickly mention some of the new things we've got going on there's a new episode of an uncanny hour which deals with cannibals and class struggle from the movie Deathline with reese Shearsmith, amongst others and uh we've also uh got well next week for if you are a, a patreon supporter i'm recording a new series and you can actually watch the live conversations that I'm having uh, if you support us on Patreon. Uh, tomorrow on Monday uh, at 11am, I'm joined by Francesca Stavrakopoulou, who is a fantastic uh, Bible scholar, and you may well have seen her on various uh, TV shows. We'll be talking about kind of meaning and purpose in our existence and how we try and find that. And I'll also be doing that on Friday at 9am with Tim Minchin. And uh, on Tuesday, one extra one that we've just added, uh, I'm going to be at 11 o'clock in the morning. I'm going to be joined by Natalie Haynes and and Mark Steele as well. So if you're a Patreon supporter, you can watch all of those things uh, live when we record them before the edit and all of those other things. And also hopefully we'll have time to do a bit of a Q&A as well. Um, so I as also mentioned questions, put them in the live chat or you can tweet them to uh, at Cosmic Shambles, the Twitter account. Uh, and uh, today we are joined by uh, Miranda Krestovnikov, who is an author, author who is, uh, 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 she uh, is president of the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds, which I was very excited to know as a member of the Young Ornithologist Club um, when I was a child there was a great book uh, called the young bird watcher uh, by a man called nicholas hammond not the same nicholas hammond who was in sound of music and spider-man even more exciting than that uh, claudia hammond from all in the mind radio falls all in the mind it was it's her dad wrote that uh, book which was one of my favorite books as a kid i loved going bird watching and we're also joined by uh, joe harkness who has written a book i read this morning and i think it's a really fantastic book uh, called bird therapy which is looking at the importance of well, one of the many things but 
nature and how that communication with nature, how that chance. And I realise that for some of you watching at the moment, you know, you may well not have the opportunity to have that communication. For other people, you may well have more of an opportunity than you've normally had. But how important that communication is for us as human beings. I should also mention that Miranda has written uh, a couple of um, excellent children's books as well. Um, we will be dealing with all of that. First of all, Helen Chersky, tell me what happened this week in science. If it's about uh, cats and cucumbers, I'm not, not happy. happy. We've covered it's that not, area now. Although I would just add about the questions, like if you're homeschooling, kids are far better at science questions sometimes than adults. So if your kid is asking you like, why this, why that? And and it's a question that does, either doesn't make that much sense to you uh, or it doesn't, you just don't know the answer. Please send those in because those are often the very best questions. Like I think we all need to switch off that thing which says we're being a sensible adult now. Um, don't be sensible, just a sense why do why are there no blue mammals like it's a really good question anyway that's not my uh, thing of science this week um so my my bit of science this week is that uh, in 1909 uh, actually from yesterday this is from the 16th of january um a group of explorers that was part of one of shackleton's expeditions first reached the mag the magnetic south pole so that's not the actual south pole of the planet it's where the the magnetic field comes through the surface and actually the reason it's interesting is and uh, it's not just that they got there or they think they got there because obviously it moves around so the problem with navigating at the poles is that you use a compass right so if you're look and if when you're at the north pole or the south pole compasses don't work because obviously the magnetic field lines are pointing up rather than sideways so it's not entirely clear whether they got there and since then that pole has wandered off to sea when it was on land but what's interesting about this story um, is actually, I think it's a really good example of how humans were not very good with nature at that time, in spite of being these great explorers. Because when they set off in 1909 to the magnetic South Pole, they set off in a car. They had a motor car. <laughs> And um, the car didn't last very long, it turns out, because it didn't deal with snow very well and slush. But I think it's a really good, you know, because a few years later, and actually the anniversary is today, 1912, uh, Scott reached the actual South Pole, having been beaten by Amundsen. And the thing that distinguished the Norwegians and the British was that the Norwegians worked with nature. They used dogs, they used experience, they used skins and furs. Whereas the British used modern things and, you know, ponies. They took ponies to the South Pole and cars and all this nonsense. And, you know, you can argue that it was worth trying. But I just think it's a really interesting example of how actually working with nature can work a lot better than things without. So they did get to the, the magnetic South Pole, but they didn't get there in their car. Oh, I've got a quick question for you next shows that I'm working on is a documentary about John Carpenter, a trilogy of John Carpenter films, including The Thing, which of course is set on an Arctic base. And I am going to be interviewing various different people who've been based on uh, Arctic bases and watched The Thing while they're there. Apparently it's quite a traditional uh, yeah. kind of view. Have you done that? Um, I haven't. I really don't like horror movies. So I'm, I'm pretty sure I've been on ships where it's been shown and I've just run off uh, and there aren't many places to run away to on the ship, so you have to try quite hard. But I've avoided it. But yeah, it is, it's definitely a thing. People sit and watch it. Um, it's much more dangerous to run off. That's where the scene. creatures are. They're not in I, the movies. They're at the side of the ship. Yeah, exactly. Why would you go looking for them on screens? You can see sea monsters. You get snow blind. You, you know, the, the ocean all looks the same. You totally see sea monsters. I was made to watch um, the Life Aquatic I was told I couldn't be an oceanographer. And that, that was my first oceanography expedition I ever did. Got there. We weren't on the ship. Sat down. And they were like, right, we're going to watch this film. And I was like, OK. And they were correct. And uh, so anyone who wants to know what life at sea is like, the life aquatic is actually very good. But yeah, no, be much better than the thing in terms of the feeling of what it's like. Yeah, there's less ultimately <laughs> nihilism in that. Uh, Miranda, I'll start off by asking, is there a bird watching film? Is there a film? I'm trying to think of films about bird. There's a rather bad adaptation of Evelyn Waugh's Decline and Fall, which for some reason is called Decline and Fall of a Bird Watch, which has nothing really to do with the original story. But is there, is there a, a movie where bird watchers go, hey, this is the one where we're the hero? Oh, my goodness me. I, I don't no. know. I don't know. I'm going to rack my brains. I'll come back to you on that one. But I, I can't think of one off the top of my head. But I have a question for you, actually. All the way through your introduction, I was sitting there. I'm trying to work out when you actually breathe, when you talk. <laughs> he's, got, he's like yeah. a dolphin. He's got a, a blowhole in the back of his head that you can't yeah. see. Have you, do you know this thing about circular breathing that people can do? I, I, a long time ago, I used to I played the flute, and you can you can actually put uh, air in your cheeks and blow that out while you're actually inhaling at the same time, and you can circular breathe. And I was trying to work out if you were doing that in your introduction. Incredible. I, I think it might be innate. It might be genetic because I've done – I mean, one of the things, obviously, I'm – 
great deal is doing tour shows. And when I do tour shows and I try and fit in as much material as possible, I do get people come up to me and go, I'm just so tired. How do you do it? I'm exhausted. And I do, I have a glass of water at the side and I all, and I get there and people will sometimes go eventually about two hours in going, drink some water, just drink a bit of it. It gets my lips and then I go, I've just remembered a thing about like just them. I wanted to ask, I don't know if any of our panel know, the Boto or Boto Dolphin River Dolphin, which has gone pink now. It didn't used to be pink. It is now a pink colour. Um, does anyone know ab about this dolphin and why it may have gone pink? Is it a healthy pink or has it got a disease or something? No, no, no. It, 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 it's like they've all gone pink. So, so I, I presume, presume it must be, I'm guessing, because I'm the non clearly on this show. Well, I'm wondering if it's something about the food stuff or something that might have in any way influenced in the same way that as far as I know, flamingos are sometimes specifically fed things to heighten the pinkness of their feathers for display. So there's lots of this pigment cyanins in nature that that uh, mammals animals can't make so they always get them from uh, um, well plant life of one sort of plant life or algae so yeah so it could be I don't know maybe we should do some quick googling or that's, that's another live chat one for you the boto dolphin is also the one I mentioned before which takes human form and uh, then gets a little bit kind of uh, goes to various different bars apparently uh, and uh, there's always a warning near where it lives that uh, to the young women that if they see a stranger wearing a hat it may well be a dolphin that's taken human form and the reason it wears a hat is because the one thing that it can't do is get rid of its blowhole there Have you, you go. been watching very dodgy films at 3am again? <laughs> no, nope, just been eating mushrooms, mate. Um, Miranda, let's uh, let's do it. now your show and tell. I bet you have got a lot of. Uh, I mean, because that I imagine very often when you're doing talks that that we've talked about this before, but that tangible thing, that way of drawing people in with with you know some just an object. What's your show and tell going to be? Right, I'm going to have reach down onto the floor to get my object. So I thought I'd go really big. Um, so I've got this here. Um, hopefully you can see that it's it's obviously a bone and it's a very large bone and it's a very old bone and this is actually um, a bit of a woolly mammoth scapula um, so this is about 40,000 years old it weighs I don't know I should weigh it actually it weighs a ton um, and uh, it's a reminder of a, an expedition that I did um, a few years ago out to the North Sea um, to uh, a, an area which is it's covered in woolly mammoth and woolly rhino bones. And it's like this hotspot for bones. And it was only discovered by people literally doing uh, trawling out there. So, so fishermen trawling out there. And they come up with, with their nets sort of full of these things. Um, it's quite a remarkable, uh, yeah, quite a remarkable thing. Really. It's a reminder of the fact that uh, during the Ice Age, there was a land bridge between England and the rest of Europe. And we'd have these huge creatures, these these woolly mammoths, woolly rhinos uh, wandering along. Um, and this is all that's left of them. And actually, you know, being on the boat when they were bringing the nets in and then they they, they, they open the nets and empty all the sea see life out onto the boat and then these enormous bones coming up and there were femurs that were coming up that were literally the size of me to be able to touch that bone and know that you're the first person ever to have touched that bone 40,000 years ago this this creature was roaming the earth was really quite special so um and woolly mammoths we always think of them as being absolutely enormous creatures but compared to the size of a you know standard African elephant they're pretty comparable um so they weigh about six tons lived I don't know, 60, 70, 80 years. Um, and I've also got, I thought I'd cheat and bring a little bit of woolly mammoth tusk in as well. So this is um, this is a bit of tusk. If you can, I don't know if you can see there that um, there are actually rings um, in the tusk, like there would be rings in the tree. So you can actually date um, a woolly mammoth by looking at the tusks and counting the rings and the tusks like you would a tree. So um, yeah, just a little bit of something that was on my mantelpiece at home. <laughs> Wow, what a mantelpiece, the size of it. Yeah. Um, Joe, uh, as I, I, I love your book, Bird Therapy, and there's some beautiful, I, I love the, the you, you, lovely story of you and your granddad going off on the Norfolk Broads, and, and it just brought so much to life. When we were just talking about that tangible thing, that to me, I can see why the love of bird watching, that moment of, you, you tell a little, well, if you want to tell the story, but that, that moment of having that special moment of observation. Well, actually, the um, the show and tell that I've got is, I don't, can you see that? British Birds. Yeah. By Kirkman and Jordan. So the, this was originally published in 1910. And um, this isn't quite that old. I think this is from, from the 30s. But this was my granddad's first bird book. And um, 
yeah, he gave it to me last year, and um, it's a very treasured object for me. But I wanted to show you a couple of the plates inside it. So, Brambling, can you see that? Yes. Yeah. So it's cut in colour as well. That's yeah, cool. they are beautiful. So, what I really like about this is it's a bit like looking through the red list of birds. There's birds in here. I'm just going to flick through and find one um, that just don't exist anymore. Now, not quite extinct yet, but your yellow hammer there is called the yellow bunting. Can you see it? Mm. Or yellow hammer. So, everything's got kind of archaic names and it's just beautiful to flick through and think that you know granddad read this when he was a kid and it got him into bird watching and um as robin as you said you know an experience with granddad is what pulled me back into it um around a time when i was really struggling with my mental health and to have that book that gave him that connection kind of brought my whole story full circle as well um, so, yeah, I just wanted to share that with you. But I ran out of the room, actually, because look what else Grandad gave me. Just for you, Robin. Oh, brilliant. <laughs> there it is. So that's what Robin was talking about. You might be able to see it. Go bird watching. Yeah. Um, this is an awesome book. And again, the, the pictures are brilliant. Um, there's some waders, I think, if I've just opened it on a random page. Yeah. And would you know, Joe, is there anything in there that would tell you, like, do they, does it look, are the descriptions, do they sound old fashioned? Oh, do they've we... learned anything about birds in the hundred years since the um, first book was published? Or is it really so, like that's a bird and it's the same kind of, you know, the birds the same? Pick a bird then, Helen. Go on, pick oh, a bird. Oh, that's mean because I don't know very much about <laughs> birds. Um, how about a bittern? Okay, okay. Because I have actually about. seen one of those, and I remember people making a lot of fuss about us seeing it. <laughs> well, actually, just going back to the to bird therapy again, there's a bit in that first chapter about me and Grandad seeing a bittern, and um, how profound it was at the time because they're so connected with with Norfolk, where I come from. Sorry, I'm not looking. I'm just trying to find bittern um, because of that connection with the area, and then to see one with him on the first day that I actually went out was, uh, yeah, amazing. But just bear with me a sec. I'm up to ducks, which I'd expect it to be near. <laughs> it should be round ducks somewhere. In the, the newer bird books, everything's in a really weird taxonomic order. Oh, here you go. I found a heron, so I can't That'll be far away. Bitten. So here's your picture. See it? Okay. Does that look like a modern bittern? Uh, yeah. Oh, it's. I gave it to you on the wrong side. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Wait um, for it. Cool. You got it now. Yeah. 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 Um, all right. So, uh, what does it have to say? Winter visitor to most parts of the British Isles, and now again resident in Norfolk when it became re-established in 1911. Bird of marshland. Yeah. I mean, this is pretty, pretty on it. There's nothing new. There's nothing about the um, cannibalistic behaviour, something for you there, Robin, um, where they will feed their young, um, any young that don't survive, to their other young in order to keep them going. Um, it's, the sound is described as a subdued whoomph, <laughs> which isn't, uh, isn't too far off, but probably not the most creative use of language. Um, but that's great, isn't it? Because just like between people but across time yeah absolutely first people to who you know the, the the guy who wrote those words presumably it was the guy i don't know um they saw what you see yeah it's not changed has it it's the same the same thing i think something i i quite enjoyed actually in in writing bird therapy was trying to describe bird sounds in a way that someone that doesn't kind of you know go bird watching or go outside that much could appreciate so take a reed warbler for example sounds like the old dial-up modem and uh i think when you connect that and hear it out in the wild you're like oh yeah that's exactly what it is and it's finding those like you say links over time isn't it to engage people what a lovely book um i want to ask you about ghosts as well but we haven't got time because i was just oh, thinking the can i just quickly chuck one in really yeah. quickly yeah really yeah. quickly yeah, um, on the subject of uh, Arctic ex exploration and um, freaking yourself out, you need to read Dark Matter by Michelle Paver, right? Just read it. 
Whoa, yeah. Uh, write that down. <laughs> write it down. Yeah. Brilliant. It stays with you for a little while after. Okay. Fantastic. Okay. So, so that is uh, that's we're giving a good list of books for you today. Um, and I think I mentioned Miranda's uh, latest book is uh, Birds Explore Their Extraordinary World. We'll start which is with you. I think this is one where probably everyone's going to have something to say on, the, on, on these questions. I'll start off with Matty's question. And, and Matty wondered, is it possible for us as a society or even as an individual to truly get back to nature in a meaningful way? Um, and then as a subsidiary question, I'll just start with that, that idea of getting back to nature. Oh, that's really, yeah, a bit of a tricky one, isn't it? I mean, um, I, I don't know what, what, what is nature. I suppose, you know, for me, getting back to nature is just spending more time in the natural world, um, sort of feeling at peace and feeling at one with nature and feeling like I am part of what's going on out there. But I think we all must have our different levels of, of what back to nature feels like, you know, whether it's actually living out in the wild and foraging and, you know, catching and killing and cooking and eating and all that sort of thing. Um, so I don't know. I think, yeah, say my, my level of back to nature is just uh, is to pull myself away from materialism, pull myself away from all the trappings and the, the busyness of the modern world um, and trying to spend as much time as possible in nature and appreciating the nature around me and, and understanding it and how I fit into that and, and, and feeling a real part of that. That gives me because I actually what I wanted to ask Joe was um, I get asked a lot about how how um, about nature therapy at the moment, because everybody's talking about it and how, you know, during lockdown, a lot of us are trying to look for the to the natural world to, to find peace and solace and some sort of meaning in life. Um, I wanted to actually almost sort of ask Joe about how he describes this. I find it very difficult to describe how good I feel when I'm in the natural world. I know how I feel, but I find very difficult to find the words to describe just how important that is, how, how, yeah, how, um, how good it is for my soul, really. really. Can Joe, can Joe yeah, come in? Yeah. Do yeah. I bring you in? Because I'm fascinated how by you, how you explain to people um, just just how you feel and how that's how the natural world has helped you. Yeah, so like you, it is incredibly difficult to actually put it into words. And I think without without undermining the book too much in itself, um, I still think there's even more I could have said and done to to share that with people. But I split it into two things. It's a, a body of evidence and then a not using too much overly beautiful and poetic kind of prose. So what I mean is it's a very simple connection. It's a very simple feeling. And what that feeling is, is pure elation. But that's just me. I don't, I don't think everybody that goes out for a walk looks and feels the same way as I might do. Um, I guess some of that comes with education. Some of that comes, and I mean education about the natural world, uh, not just education in general, but some of it comes with, with grounding and understanding of kind of meditation and, and, and breathing and, and things like that. But one of the things I also put across so much in my writing is that it's, it's not just about and this will come back to your point. It isn't just for me about watching birds. It's very much a multi-sensory experience. So I write a lot about sound. I write a lot about feeling. I write a lot about what things sort of cause in my brain um, in a good way to, to try and express that to other people. And then I think what that all boils down to and in answer to the original question is it's just about a state of being and that's being me again outside and going back to nature so to go back to the very original question from the gentleman that had written in um nice link there um it's i i don't see myself i don't commodify nature so it's not like i need need to go outside because i need like a fix of nature or you know i need my dose of nature i hear that language a lot i i am nature um so it's just about going back, stripping everything back to the basics 
that's a phrase I use a lot as well, to um, just allow myself to connect again. And uh, yeah, almost spiritual in a way, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. But not in like a, I'm not spiritual about nature, but it, it is a very kind of ethereal experience. And uh, just while I'm there, for the lady who's asked what's on the T-shirt, it says, be more tree. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> just so you know what it says. <laughs> but a tree is a good analogy, isn't it? Because I often, I think a lot of this is about time. Like there's a human in our world that things happen on our time scale. We go at three o'clock and we expect to do a thing by four o'clock. And actually in nature, a lot of it is going back. It's like the same little thing. And you, it's like slow observation. It used to drive me mad. So I've done a lot of scuba diving. I haven't done very much recreational diving. But when I do, people are always in a certain hurry. They're rushing off. We're going to go over that. And you're just like, just stay here and pretend you're a fish. Right. And, and it's like, because your time scale isn't what matters. The world around you is moving. Like you can look at a mountain scene and people say, oh, it's empty. And it's not empty. It's just moving too slowly for you to see. But if you came back every day for a year you would see and and I feel there's a lot about time in that that it forces you out of the the sort of busy everyday clock and it it tells you that other things work at different speeds and you have to work on their time scale right I once sat in a cave and I'm sure Miranda has done this as well sat in a cave for four hours waiting for a snake to do something right four hours staring at a snake all these natural history people going it's just about to do it it's just about to do it I'm a physicist. I was like, snake's done nothing. For I literally said at some point, I'm freezing. Can I go and get a jumper? And the cameraman said, no, 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 because it's just about to do it. And I was like, three yeah. hours I've been sitting here and it hasn't done it yet. And eventually, four hours, the snake decided it was going to have a bat for dinner. But um, but there's that like, you just have to like go at somebody else's speed. You're, you're, del you're not in control. And I think having that control taken away from you is part of it as well. Mm. I, I absolutely agree with what you said. Again, obviously, we've got to mention lockdown at some point, haven't we? I think one of the beauties of lockdown for me and my family was um, this almost this time last year, so it's a March last year, doing the same walk around our house and watching the bluebells coming out. And literally, you know, on day one, there'd be, you know, a few buds. And on day two, a couple of bluebells would be out. And on day three, we'd have 10 and then 100 and then 1,000. And then the whole field would be. And, you know, we would never have seen those sort of things had we not been in that time zone. And you're so right that we do. And especially, you know, young people today, everything is on demand. Everything is so quick. You know, we want everything now or yesterday. Um, and things have to happen in our time scale and actually just to take some time um, and step back from it all and let it happen in the time that nature allows rather than the time that we dictate I think it's such a beautiful thing to do and I totally agree with you about the scuba diving is that when I'm scuba diving um, I like to sit there and pretend I'm a fish I really get frustrated when you're with a group of people and they want to move from A to B um, it's like going on a walk and, and and you know you've got to start here and end there and we've got to be finished in an hour I would like to sit down and just watch and wait and wait for the nature around me to um to, to to realize that i'm not a threat and start behaving naturally in front of me so i can sit and observe it um and too often uh, you know i've taken people out on walks or dives or whatever and people just want it now they want to see that thing that they've seen on tv happening right now in front of them we forget that we have to wait and watch um, so I think the beauty of having a little bit more time maybe nowadays and less pressure on, on our lives has been that we can just sit back and watch and wait a little bit more. I think you said, Joe, with, with your tree, uh, it reminds me of probably some research we might have talked on this before. But the fact that even in, in buildings where on one side there's only uh, a view of the street and on the other side there's a view of a tree, it actually has an effect on, on people. This has been there's been a, quite a few papers now that have looked at the effect of even being being near that, you know, just one living thing growing. And I think also the research that was done for people in retirement homes, if they were given a plant to look after. So for a lot of people watching this who, who may well be living in a city at the moment and may well not have the access, you know, I think from what I can gather from the research I read, that even having that thing of having one plant that you go back to and you water that day and you see the changes in that, even something as small as that, I think probably has some uh, positive effect. Um, we better move can on I, to the next question. Can quick. I add something yeah. there? Of course. Yeah, so you know, you know what I said about the multi-sensory side of things? It's not just um, being able to see something that's beneficial. Uh, there was a really interesting study where they piped bird song into a um hospital ward and it was a ward for people that were 
recovering after chemotherapy, I believe. And the um, rates at which people or well, people's health was improved in a, a sense, of it, not a, a clinical sense. It was very much a I feel better, you know, I feel better. Uh, my well-being feels better sense um, was so much higher in those people that had been on that ward. So it definitely is also about what you can hear as well. Um, yeah, I just wanted to chuck that one in there. Well, we try, we'll try and make this. We'll put up on some of the social media accounts, some of the kind of papers and some of the research and things like yeah, that. Yeah, I think it was older hospital in Liverpool. I think they did. Uh, they certainly did a piping bird song through the um, the corridors in the hospital up there, and playing bird song, and, song and, and, natural and natural sounds to particularly children as well when they were having injections or or chemotherapy, um, lowered heart rate and blood pressure and all things like that. So. Yeah, it's like people are going to go to Salisbury Cathedral to get their vaccine, and apparently the organ's going to be playing. You know, the fact you're going to have bark at the same time as you're being vaccinated, I imagine, is going to make it a very experience. Um, Roger would like to know uh, what the panel's view is on the pesticide now cleared for emergency use in the UK that was banned in the EU um, that is apparently known to kill bees. I don't know anything about this, so I wonder. Neonics. if that is a, Yeah. Uh, yeah so these are yeah so these are quite these have been well controversial is depends it's very much dependent on who you are so they are um they're used as pesticides they are very definitely very bad for bees they're actually they're illegal in this country you can buy them actually online i think but they are technically illegal for farmers to use and they've said that um because you know there's an emergency we have to allow them back onto the field and everyone's gone hang on like there's this idea of a sort of holistic field right the way that nature works is it's an ecosystem and you've got a balance of insects and you know birds that feed on the insects and things fertilizing other things and all that kind of stuff and and if you have these monocultures you take away all the natural benefits that having an ecosystem brings and and the neonicotinoids are, are like a tool you use if you have a monoculture so basically everyone thought they'd got rid of them and that the bees were all right and then the idea of bringing them back really the fight isn't about the neonics themselves although it is specifically what the argument is about what it's about is do we believe in a holistic version of nature that can actually do things better or do we believe that no we're going to have one plant and one pesticide and nothing else shall grow in this field and we think we can do better um and the evidence is generally that you know, there are benefits to having other species around. Sure, it makes harvesting a bit messy, but it's better. And and so this argument, I don't, I haven't followed the details of it in the past few days, but it, it's going to boil up um, again. But the root of it is, do we trust nature and an ecosystem to grow our food or do we have to be control freaks about it? Uh, thank right. you for that. Uh, and uh, Miranda, I'll show th th this question. This is from Rose, who would like to know um, when people talk about diving, there is talk of the fear of getting the bends. Uh, but Rose wants to know what actually is the bends? What does that mean? So, so, when, you so dive, when you dive, you're breathing uh, compressed gas and um, the nitrogen in that gas gets dissolved in your bloodstream. And if you uh, basically if you come up from pressure to too quickly that nitrogen comes out of solution and can form bubbles and those bubbles can get lodged in um, your your blood system and they can get lodged in your brain and your spine and that can cause paralysis even death if you if you surface too quickly so um, the bends is quite it, it can vary from very mild just having a headache or a slight ache to something really quite serious so when dive when you're diving basically when you come down from from a depth you have to sorry when you come up from a depth you need to come up very gently to allow the um, nitrogen to come out of your uh, your blood solution in a, in a very safe way at the end of the day I have been diving for 20 odd years so 25 years um, I've only had the bends once and it only resulted in a bit of a headache and that was somebody giving me some very bad advice when I was a very amateur diver um, to do something I really shouldn't have done um, but you know normally it's one of those things that people are very scared about and as long as you learn about it and you know what it is uh, very few people recreational divers anyway actually really suffer from this so um, it's something I think there's a lot of hype about but it's like you know if you go into the ocean there are going to be loads of sharks everywhere and you we ought to be scared of them um, you know I knew very few people who've, who've ever suffered from it and it's normally normally in, in a very mild way it's you know it's it's completely uh dealable with so I yeah I nothing think that's the 
Peter Benchley's uh, The Deep, which I think I think it was in that movie where someone gets the bent. And so any of us who are eight years old and taken to see that movie already being terrified by, you know, great white sharks. Uh, yeah, that was, uh, oh, the misinformation of Hollywood. I'm not sure you can entirely trust it as uh, an educational source. Um, Julie has a question for you, Joe. Uh, Julie would like to know, what was the moment, or can you remember the moment when it really dawned on you that you loved bird watching? Yeah, it's really early on. It's, yeah, it's really about, early on. It's, I write about it in the first chapter of the book. Um, so post-breakdown and upon um, starting to take selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, SSRIs, they, um, they sort of bring your brain, your, your happiness, if you like, up a level, up a notch. Um, from where you are uh, and it's kind of akin to the effect that some class a drugs would have on your brain so a feeling often described as coming up um and uh yeah i was out for a walk and could feel my brain coming up with with the medication and uh i, I looked up at a tree line and there were two buzzards displaying over it and as they were displaying, they, they were calling, they sort of mew. Uh, I'm not going to replicate it, but it's quite quite a graceful sound. And um, as they were sort of flying up and dipping down, I found myself really mesmerised by them. And because I was getting to a, or trying to get to a better place at that time, I connected their freedom and their regality, so their, their majesty, I describe it in the book, to um, the state I wanted to be in. A very aspirational moment and watching them then made me just think yeah I love birds and then watching them reconnected my love from watching them as a child with my granddad and like I said about earlier it all kind of came back round again from that point it is such a I'm lucky where I live is uh, where they've done the repopulation of, of the red kite. And of course, it's been enormously su successful in, in Buckinghamshire. And uh, and that bit of sometimes just lying in the garden and then looking up and just seeing one of those glide. Uh, it, it's such a, as you said, that I, I can't remember who I was talking to. It was, it was a humanist celebrant. It was telling me about a moment that she had where she was just sat in a car looking out, just stuck in a traffic jam. And she saw, I think it was a kestrel in the field. And she said, and suddenly I became that kestrel that bit where you become so detached from yourself and it and as you said it does end up sounding mis mystical sometimes and spiritual but it is it is that i think that's why we don't have language for it because there's so much less language for mm -hmm. happiness because if you're happy you don't have to communicate it as much whereas mm -hmm. if you've got anger then there's all you know it's always harder to write a good review than it is to write a bad review because you just have to keep saying this is great and it's really brilliant and it's wonderful and you know finding that language is, is much harder i think it's birds of prey though isn't it because they're so powerful, intelligent, beautiful, you know, beautiful. You know, I could list superlatives, yeah, of how awesome raptors, birds of prey are. And, you know, you just said then the kestrel. I allude to kestrels and buzzards in the opening chapter of bird therapy. And I think that there's something about, you know, even going back to like Roman times when they were the totem on, on you know, centurion's flagpole and, and whatever. Um they're very much something that we associate with with goodness and power and i think that always sits in our subconscious as well when we think about birds especially birds of prey um wonderful um abby six-year-old abby uh, hello abby. she's uh, I'll, I'll throw this tune around she says uh, mum says we shouldn't put seed out seeds out for the birds because it attracts mice as well is she right <laughs> <laughs> Well, well, it's bird feeding. There's a whole science around bird feeding. So I think the best thing to do is to put a bird food on a bird table or in a bird feeder rather than on the ground. We get rats underneath our bird feeder and it's this this constant battle whether we want to put the you know, we want to feed the birds, but we're feeding the rats as well. So it's not not a great thing. Um, and obviously you've got to watch out about cats as well. There's a whole thing if you put food out on a bird table sometimes you know the cats will 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 get the birds um if you put food on the ground actually that's a real problem with cats as well so if you did put food on the ground you can get these little sort of um, mesh 
like boxes that you can put over the top that the, the birds can fit through the mesh, but the cat can't, but the mice will still get it. So I would say to her, get yourself a bird feeder. If you can, if you don't want to buy one, you can make one out of an old plastic, um, uh, like a, um, a water bottle, there's stuff online, RSPB website, actually, go to the RSPB website. I'll tell you how to make a bird feeder. Um, so and also it's things like, um, you know, put a variety of bird seed out as well. You get a variety of birds if you put more than one thing out. So don't just put grain out, put sunflower seeds, sunflower hearts, crushed peanuts, all those sort of things. And water at this time of year as well, when it's really cold, um, a lot of birds actually struggle to find a source of water that's ice free. So if you've got a pond, break the ice. If you put little sources of water out, make sure the ice is broken so the birds can feed and bathe as well, because that's really critical at this time of year. Although also I would add, I had a, um, a two year period of living in Rhode Island of keeping the squirrels out of a bird feeder. And it turned into this battle of the, I've got a video actually, I'll put it on Twitter later, of ninja trained squirrels. There was this battle of wits that I thought I'd found another obstacle and then they found their way around it. So it's also providing entertainment in keeping the other the other rodents out, the ones that aren't the mice. Um, Robin, I've got some questions here because of the binging that Trent's been keeping an eye on social media. So I've got, um, I've got a comment, which is it's, it's apparently true about cats and cucumbers um, and this person Tony says that when they grow courgettes the cats stop using that area of the garden as a toilet oh thank heavens so I found a reason because next door's cat is driving me <laughs> mad and I don't think it's well either so that combination in where we normally grow our rhubarb right it's courgettes good now on good so anyway so anyway we also have a live question from Richard uh, and either Joe or Miranda might know the answer to this and it is can birds smell Um, well, I know they've got, they've got a, um, uh, they have a sense of smell. I'm assuming we're not talking about ponging birds here. This is <laughs> do they use as their sense of smell to um, to live their lives. Sorry, Ooh. it's a lovely bit of suspense. We're very uncertain. <laughs> the, uh, so I'll tell you what. We'll back come to back to then. Do do birds have a sense of smell? No, right. Okay, then. I'll tell you what, prize for Richard for asking that question. In that, I don't think we've ever had a question that has produced, produced, because um, so, they're really good questions to produce a pause, aren't they? So, so prize for Richard for that one. And it was great. And Joe, can I just say that your um, uh, uncertain is so still that I had presumed you'd frozen. I was watching for any detail there, and I went, "Oh no, 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 he's still there." Just going. I hope Miranda picks up on this one because I am seeing this one out. Yeah, I mean, they have, I think they're relying more. More and more on their sense, on their sense of, of um, eyesight and sense of taste rather than a sense of smell. Um, but I, yeah, they do. I don't know. If, I, and nobody's ever asked me that before. Um, I don't think yeah, it's not something they're relying on to survive and to find food. It's much more. They're much more a visual, visual animal. Um, I don't know okay. what the homework yeah. for us all. Yeah, yeah. that's a great um, question. Um, I'm just going to give you a, a quick question, Joe, that Andy sent in, which is uh, Andy wants to know what stroke how turned the goldfinch from a farmland bird into a garden bird. Are there other species that follow their example? Yeah, and they go vice versa. Yeah, and they go vice versa as well. Um, I think it's just the change in how we farm. Uh, I think Helen mentioned earlier about. Um, monocultures and sort of growing one thing um can i just say there's an amazing book called our country by mark cocker which explains all of this so well about how our landscape has changed um and our farming practices have changed i really do recommend reading it um but yeah as we changed how we farm birds moved from the farmland into our gardens and um it's interesting if you go to an organic farm of which we do have quite a lot in Norfolk um, where they leave really profound strips of set aside along the edge of their fields and allow their crops to go to seed over winter. You get so many goldfinches, so many linnets, um, almost like they've come from the urban. So I, where I live, actually, there's less goldfinches in the town than there are when you go out onto the farmland now don't ask me what the crops they've changed are because i haven't got a clue but i know that's why they moved into the garden so i don't know if either of you helen or miranda know um any more about that no but i know that we get a lot of 
woodland birds that we're encouraging to our garden. So we're now called garden birds that would traditionally have been woodland birds. And I guess, you know, a lot of birds are just are moving into the urban area because we're offering them food, water, shelter, things like that in our garden. So I guess there is a shift. I'm not I'm not aware of the, the, the goldfinch, so I don't know what that's what's brought those in. Um, I just get excited when I see them on my bird feed. So I mean, fantastic. The uh, this well that question from Andrew who uh, this is about sparrows which is are modern houses unsuitable for sparrows if so how can we bring them back and as, as you mentioned there about the different birds that we see I find it fascinating seeing you know thinking of the number of starlings that I used to see thinking of the number of sparrows I saw when I grew up thinking you know the, the change of, of what we observe so so sparrows uh, Joe yeah so I live in a, a house that was built in the 70s and I've got the 70s and I've got uh, starlings, swifts and sparrows that will begin with S um, nesting in the eaves of the roof. And they they rotate so they know when each finishes their nesting cycle. So the next can move in. They're very clever. And some are at the front and some are at the back. And the sparrows are at the back here. And um, I know that it is because of the way the house was built that they are able to get in under and nest in there. Now, I think modern developers now are encouraged to put in uh, different boxes and different types of brick that you can buy that have um, nest holes built into them and I know the RSPB um, that we've mentioned a few times now do quite a lot of work around this and with developers of new large um, you know like massive housing developments and estates and things. Um, RSPB did one I think uh, last year um, which was a kind of flagship for this kind of building. I remember reading about it in their magazine, Nature's Home. And um, yeah, I definitely, well, I, I know that it is unsuitable in a modern build because every gap is plugged up. Um, it's all about efficiency and economy. So they are literally like a closed vacuum to keep all the heat in. Um, not saying that my house is like super cold or anything, but it... Uh, definitely has its drafty bits which is good for wildlife so yeah it is definitely worse in a new build well this is a cool noise uh miranda for you uh again something of, of a childhood which has changed uh nickel noise says uh i know that uh apparently bread is bad for ducks and geese mm. but i don't know why uh why should we no longer feed uh, bread to uh, ducks or geese well, it's just not very, not very nutritionally beneficial for them. It's much better to go and buy some grain and get some bird seed and give it to them. If they eat too much bread, it sort of expands in their stomach and they think they're full and they stop eating and then they're not going to eat, you know, sort of energy efficient grain and things like that, which is going to give them enough uh, sort of fat reserves to, to keep, uh, keep them going through the winter. I mean, it's one of those, it's really tricky question because I don't want to stop kids going out or, or adults going out and get that pleasure of feeding birds bread at the park I think what I would I always like to do is sort of encourage people to go and feed birds but just think about what you're feeding them so you know if you have to make a decision here you know, brown bread's better than white bread but if you really want to do something good then actually go and make an effort and go and get some proper bird seed or grain which is just going to it's just much more beneficial in, in terms of, of nutritional value um, and it's like when you you know what you're putting out on your bird feeder as well on your bird table you know don't put cake out don't put bread out you know we know so much more than we you know we did you know generations ago when when that sort of thing was acceptable so let's do the right thing um if you care about wildlife enough try and get the right sort of food to put out there but please don't let that stop you going to the park and feeding ducks i think that's it's a really important thing to do and a great way of engaging children with nature as well you know it's really hard to you know to just say don't do it but you know keep doing it but do it in the right way not what's it as well avoid feeding them what's it's oh, yeah. way not very good Joe wanted to come in as well. yeah yeah we, we um we take cereal we take cereal you know like cornflakes and stuff um to feed the ducks i read it on sorry to plug them again but on an rsvb forum um, <laughs> I, mean. I know you're loving it yeah. <laughs> so i read on a forum um to use uh the cereals that have minimal sugar and things in you know like, like cornflakes and shreddies and rice krispies and stuff like that they're all fine to just shove in a bag and throw out to feed the ducks um, much better for them than bread because obviously they're grain and cereal based so yeah just a, a good one there is to use those breakfast cereals as well 
That's brilliant. Question. And then I, it's going to be, I'm going to throw this at you. This is from uh, hashtag gifted parent on Twitter, uh, who had a question from their child about ash this morning, uh, which was why when a log sometimes burns, does its shape remain? But the moment that you actually then prod it, obviously it, it, it collapses into ash. <clears throat> what is it that means that a log sometimes maintains its shape? Maintains yeah, its so what's shape? Going, yeah, so what's going on is that it, it basically it's incomplete combustion. It's not burning fully. So in order for something to burn, you need a fuel and you need oxygen. But obviously, wood can be quite dense, right? It's it's um, and for oxygen to get in in time, it's got to you know find its way through. So you burn out and you get sort of um, a frag, you know, an outer shell. But then, you know, for oxygen to get further and further in, this it's kind of more and more oxygen deprived as you get inside. Um, and if the temperature isn't very high and, you know, you've got a big log to burn, so it's using up a lot of oxygen, you just don't burn very well. And so instead of burning all the way to carbon dioxide, what you do is char things. So, so it's basically, it's a bit singed, but it's not but because if you burn it completely, you get carbon dioxide and that just evaporates off into the atmosphere. Um, but if you don't burn it all the way, you, you burn off some things, but the oxygen can't get in there because carbon dioxide has both carbon and oxygen. And so so you, you can't burn it fully. So you're left with this stuff behind that still has a shape because it hasn't been able to burn because it hasn't had enough oxygen. Um, and so, yeah, so so it still holds its shape. But then obviously it's probably burned away from the inside. So then it, it's very crumbly. And charcoal is kind of halfway to that. It's burning. It's been effectively smouldered. So burnt with very little oxygen. Um, so it's taken, it's driven off the water, but it's left all the carbon behind that you can then burn to make carbon dioxide and heat so so yeah it's because it can't burn completely which is why if you burn paper that doesn't happen because there's loads of oxygen it's easy to get in there and and so it it does all end up as as carbon dioxide right while we're on the periodic table i'm just going to throw one more question at helen which is someone sent to me the other day they might uh, it's some uh, tea bags, I think sold by Marks and Spencers, which says do not use water that's been boiled before because it means that the oxygen's been boiled off. Ooh. Now, yeah, yeah. Now, this is what I need to. Yes, I thought that's the face I'd get from you. This is th this idea that there's a decline in the amount of. of, of, of yeah, I'm so sorry to do this to you. Um, the, but this idea of the decline of, because my obvious as a non-scientist, my obvious reaction was, well, well, hang on a minute. That that's no, it hasn't turned into hydrogen. You're not now drinking hydrogen only tea. What on earth is any of that based on? Okay, so it is the, it is true that it is true that water generally has oxygen dissolved in it because oxygen uh, and nitrogen, they're gases in the air. If you you know, I've I've got half a cup of tea left over here. It's been in contact with the air for a long time, for a while. It will have, it will be 100% saturated with oxygen and nitrogen, which means that they're dissolved in it. They're just kind of sitting there. Now, if you, um, if you warm it up, if you, you've got fully saturated water. It's got lots of gas dissolved in it. If you warm it up, what happens is the gas evaporates back into the air quicker than the water. So, so actually, the water molecules are fine. They're left behind. But the intact molecules of oxygen that were dissolved in it just go out into the atmosphere. So actually, if I want to degas water, I heat it up. Now, the reason that that is rubbish when it comes to tea is that it takes very, very little to reoxygenate water. So it is true that if you heat water up without boiling it, um, it will drive, it, it'll have less oxygen and most of that will evaporate um, and you can cool it down. And if you keep it absolutely still, um, you'll know more, you know, the, the, the rate of oxygen flow back in from the atmosphere is really low. And so the, the stuff below has very little dissolved oxygen. However, I am someone who spent quite a lot of time making uh, deoxygenated water for various reasons. And anything you do, any tiny little stir and the oxygen is straight back in. So the process of pouring water from the kettle into the cup is easily enough to give it 100% saturation, to put all the oxygen back in because it's just turbulent. It's exposing loads of it to the air. By the time it hits your tea bag, what, whatever you did to it in the kettle, I can pretty much guarantee it will be 100% saturated by the time it, it gets into the thing. And you can actually see this. You know, I've got oxygen monitors that I use at work. You can put them uh, in, in a tank of water. And if you just like shake your hand in the top a little bit, it goes up to 140% saturation, then comes back down again. So, so it's nonsense, not because the concept is wrong, because you can dissolve oxygen and nitrogen and take them out again, but it's so hard to keep them out 
that pouring it, disturbing it in any way, just the bubbling process of boiling is will put it all back in. So the way they wrote it suggested that the H two O. It's definitely kind of it's it, not that oxygen. It's not that. It's it's the it's the um, di it's it's O two. It's O two. That's it's the molecule O two. It won't dissociate when it moves into right. the water. So it, it stays as an intact molecule and will go into the water and come out again with two little oxygens next to each other in a pair. So it's nothing to do with the oxygen in the water. So the oxygen and the oxygen to hydrogen ratio in the water stays the same. That's not what you're changing. Uh, it's what a load of oxygen comes in. Yeah. What you can use, because if you're saying just moving the water, so some kind of specialist spoon, like a, a teaspoon or something like that could be used then I imagine. That will, re that will, that will bring the oxygen back. All you need is to expose that water to, to a little bit of air and the oxygen just redissolves so quickly if you stir it. Um, I mean, this is, the problem is what you're getting here is someone who studies at gas who studies at gas transfer across water surfaces for a living, but um, um, it's so easy for it to get back in that you can drive the oxygen off if you keep the water complete. And what that will stop is bubbles. You know, like you leave a glass of water by the bedside and you see bubbles forming. It's that oxygen and nitrogen right. that you're driving off. So you can stop bubbles forming, which is why I do it in the lab sometimes. But it's it's. Yeah, it's definitely not. It's not. If it affects the court, the taste of your tea, it's for other reasons. Yeah, well, I think the uh, the sales of specialist spoons, these tea spoons that we've been talking about, are going to go through the roof after this. Uh, back to woodpeckers. Uh, actually, the first woodpecker question today. This is, and also a bird that I've never heard of, which I apologise for. Um, uh, this is from Matthias, who says, "I feel like I used to see a lot of woodpeckers and wrynecks. I don't know what a wrynecks is. Um, when out and about, uh, I don't see so many now. Um, have migration patterns changed? Populations dwindled? Or am I just not looking?" Uh, and uh, Matthias is in um, Norwich. So, and is, is that just out and about at this, at moment, this in, moment in time, at this time of year? Or I, just... I, I think this is broadly, I think this is saying that just not seeing as many woodpeckers as, you know, used to, or certainly hearing as, as, as many woodpeckers. Okay, well, it's all about habitat at the end of the day. And we've got three types of woodpecker, three species of woodpecker here in, in the UK. Um, I Certainly where I live, I'm seeing more green woodpeckers than I've ever seen before. Um, they like uh, sort of hopping on the garden and picking up ants and things like that. And since I've lived in my house, I've been here about 15 years now. Uh, year on year, we get more and more woodpeckers. So um, I don't know if it's that woodpecker he's talking about, obviously the great spotted woodpecker, which is the one that you hear drumming away at, um, at the, in the springtime. They, the, the, the males sort of, they like to um, uh, pick a sort of hollow tree, find something with a bit of resonance um, and then drum away to sort of defend their territory and just announce that, that this is their territory and to any rival woodpeckers that would be would be close by. Um, I'm not aware of a massive, I mean, obviously, you know, we talk about decline of species just generally uh, around the country. I'm not aware of a massive decline of, of, uh, of woodpeckers. I don't know. What about you, Joe, where you live? Uh, lo uh, loads of um, great spotted woodpeckers still around. Um, they start drumming around now, actually. Um, not as consistently as spring, but you will start to hear them from kind of January onwards. And um, the Rhineck is a, a African migrant, so only passes by um, on what we would call sort of drift migration uh, through spring and then also in autumn as well. Um, so, yeah, you, you won't see them unless it's in migration um, seasons. But, yeah, great spot on green. I've not noticed any dip. Green I've always found slightly harder to see. Um, I hear them more because they laugh, they yaffle, it's called. Um, so, yeah, uh, greens I hear more than I see, but I've not noticed a decline, no. Is that yeah. what Professor Yaffle in, in mm. uh, Bagpuss was? Bagpuss, yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> live chat that says turkey vultures and albatross definitely have a sense of smell. Well, I Googled that quickly. Awesome. So <laughs> Brilliant. We're all learning. That's Professor Yaffle, who's based on Bertrand Russell as well, if anyone's ever uh, wondered where Oliver Postgate and Peter Furman just beautiful imaginations i think we're probably going to do an uncanny hour documentary about them um just before we have the final questions just mention again that uh next week's show uh we're going to be talking about genetics and aging with uh andrew Steele, amongst others so start uh tweeting your questions to at cosmic shambles or sending them to the cosmic shambles site uh questions about genetics and questions also about the genetics of aging 
why, for instance, does Brian Cox have such better genes than I do when he's a year older than me? And yet, and yet, not fair. And uh, also uh, a quick reminder, um, which is uh, for Patreon supporters, uh, tomorrow at 11 in the morning, I'm going to be talking to Francesca Stavrokopoulou. And uh, then on uh, 11 o'clock on Tuesday morning, Mark Steele and Natalie Haynes. And on Friday morning at 9 a.m., uh, I'm going to be talking to Tim Minchin. If you're a Patreon supporter, you'll be able to access all of those live conversations and uh, submit questions uh, as well. Um, now, so I, we've got a few. I apologise, Neil. We're not going to get to your question about double yolks, but we will do that on another occasion. And I have been sent some stuff. Apparently, Dave Gorman on one of his shows did a lot of stuff about double yolks. So go and look at that. Um, this is... I'm trying to work out... Um, why do, I'll just ask this broadly, actually, because I, I realise this isn't, I don't think anyone's area necessarily of specialism, which is, um, Salvo wants to know, why are dolphins the epithet for intelligence in the animal world? So, Miranda, maybe start with you as someone who's been diving. Perhaps yeah. I don't know if you've, have you had communication with dolphins? Absolutely, because they are intelligent creatures. They're incredibly intelligent. They've got huge brains. They're social creatures. They, 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 they live in groups. They have a, an amazing sense of communication. And we're still, scientists are still trying to unravel all the different bubbles and sort of noises and squeaks that they make. Um, uh, you know, it's said that dolphins have their own name. They have a signature whistle that they identify themselves with. Um, groups have different dialects. Um, any animal, um, if you look in the animal world, that, that is a social animal that has a communication uh, system or communi communicates with others in its social group is very intelligent. And dolphins are, and they're brilliant, and they like to play as well. I've been diving with dolphins a few times, and, and they do, you know, any animal that has this capacity to play, again, is regarded as very intelligent. So a dolphin will pick up a bit of seaweed uh, and give it to you and, and you know, as, as a gift and ask you to play with it. And, and they do play hide and seek with you, just as seals do. And of another very intelligent, uh, social, air-breathing mammal uh, that lives in our seas. So um, I, I think they are absolutely very, well, I know they are very intelligent. A huge brain, um, a, a complex communication system and a, and a social way of living. I think, I they, think might, they might also pass the mirror test, which is a test that's had a, what you think of it, I think has changed a bit over time. But there is this thing, elephants pass it, humans pass it. I think there's only four things that if you put a spot on you know, you like you draw a spot on a dolphin, however you do that, not an expert. Um, the dolphin swims off and sometime later you show it a mirror. It, it, it recognises that the spot is on its own face. So there's and I, and I think that recently this test is one of those things that people have said, oh, it's a bit more complicated than that. But I think at least some uh, of the toothed whales, which is the class that dolphins belong to, pass that, that test. I would recommend so, if there's a, a great about 60s and 70s science has a very good chapter on uh, the work of John C. Lilly, who uh, who we've talked about before uh, on dogs. It's interesting you say that, actually, because I think with uh, with the great apes, chimpanzees, bonobos and possibly orangutans pass that test, but gorillas don't, which would possibly not really. Yeah, so, so there's, well, well, we'll do a whole show on that. Um, Joe, can I ask you now? We, we, we've run out of time. I apologise. We, we did have a question about the whole kind of William Reese Mogg British fish thing and overfishing. Nigel, we will get to that one day because I think there is a whole, you know, terrible can of worms there. And also much of the can of worms, which is people in government who deliberately say something reasonably ludicrous, hoping that it means you take your eye off actually what's going on. It's the old sleight of hand trick, which we, we see used a great deal uh, at the moment. Um, Joe, uh, what are you most looking forward or hoping to see in the, in the next few months? We still we have a month and a half officially of winter left. Um, what will excite you to, uh, to, to spot? Uh, to, to spot? Um, I'll, I'll forward it slightly to April. And um, last year we had a black red start in our back garden. Um, they are awesome birds. And uh, I did not expect to see one in our back garden in inland Norfolk so because uh, they, they tend to visit kind of industrial sites along the coast during migration time so they'll stop off at you know like um, telecoms buildings and things like that and um, yeah to be at home and again right at the beginning Miranda mentioned about the, the change in lockdown and our habits because I was at home I saw the black red start had I have been at work I would not have seen it I wouldn't have been able to share it with our daughter and you know that that was a really magical moment last year so I kind of hope something like that happens again but um 
I'll be happy with anything because I do all my birding um, within one and a half miles of my house. It's a kind of project I'm doing at the minute. I saw 101 species of bird last year, which is incredible. Um, actually, it's really incredible for where I live, that number. Um, so, yeah, anything. I'm happy to see any bird. I've been watching Dunnocks and Robins on the feeders today. That's enough for me. Miranda? <laughs> Oh, um, a kestrel box in our garden and we've got um, a little camera inside the kestrel box. So we have this and it's been amazing during lockdown. We have this monitor in our kitchen that's on 24-7 and we can see the kestrels inside. So we've got the female who comes in every single night um, using the box and um, we just want to see the male who should come in again, you know, anytime soon uh, and start using them and then we'll the box and then we'll see them uh courting and mating and then the female will start laying eggs and that happens around easter time and we all get very excited about the the eggs hatching and then the kids actually got involved in ringing the kestrel chicks last year and it's a whole amazing cycle that we would have no idea that happens just in our back garden if we hadn't put this camera in our nest box so um we just watch it every day we turn on this monitor every day in our kitchen and watch the kestrels and it's the most magical thing it's our our way of connecting with the wildlife outdoors while sitting around our kitchen table it's fantastic so before we go can i just give a massive club we've talked about the rspb a lot and i'm really sorry about that but <laughs> you know the rspb big garden bird watch is uh, in two weeks time so the 29th 30th and 31st of um january and if people are, are sort of interested in bird watching but they've never done it before this is absolutely the ideal opportunity to to watch birds in your garden just for an hour just go onto the rspb website and you can log all the different species in your garden and count them all it's a great way of getting connected with the birds that are just outside your kitchen window that's fantastic thank you so much miranda it's already miranda's uh, most recent book a uh, book for kids called birds explore their Ex extraordinary world uh and there it is and joe's book which i uh, said i really recommend and uh, uh it's from unbound uh bird therapy take a look at that have, have a little look find out a bit more about those books and uh thank you very much to our producer trent burton thank you very much to all our patreon supporters i'll see some of you uh tomorrow morning at 11 a.m uh loads of new shows coming out and i also highly recommend if you get a chance uh, the book shambles that Josie and I did with Alan Davis uh, for his brilliant book, Just Ignore Him, uh, I think is one of the best conversations we've ever had. And uh, so if you get a chance, um, do take a listen, because I think it's a very important and, uh, and interesting book. Thank you so much to Helen as well. I will see you uh, next Sunday. As I said, genetics and ageing, that's uh, sending your questions. Uh, if we don't see beforehand, we'll see three o'clock on Sunday. Thank you very much for listening. Support us at patreon.com slash cosmic shambles. Check out all the other stuff over at cosmicshambles.com. Follow us on Twitter at cosmic shambles or cosmic shambles network on Instagram and Facebook. Bye for now. This podcast is part of the cosmic shambles network. 